So Mtoko Zisitwala, one of the people who were present when Senzo Mayo was killed, has finished his time on the witness stand. We take a look back at his testimony. Twala struggled to describe the gun used by the intruder. He also failed to clarify what language he said the intruder used when he demanded phones and money. Some have described him as a hostile witness, while others have questioned the value of his testimony. That's all in this episode of Above the Law, the Senzo Mayo trial. Let's get this show on the road. This is, of course, Above the Law, the Senzo Mayo trial with myself, Kumuto Mudise. I'm the host. And we have these conversations every week when the trial is in session. So we gather here to have a conversation about the Senzo Mayo trial. Whatever stands out for you, whatever you think may be important for you, whatever questions you have had during proceedings during the week, I know many of you have a lot of contributions to make. This is the platform for you. But of course, what we make sure we do is that we have someone of authority a legal analyst, an attorney, a lawyer, anyone who is, um, you know, the, the the authority in the legal space, and they come here to make their contributions and to shed light for us. Today, my guest is Melusi Kulu, and he's a legal analyst. He's here to uh, shed some light for us and kind of let us know what stood out for him. Of course, we all care what stands out for the lawyer, because then we should know it should stand out for us. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much, Melusi. Welcome. He's going to be speaking in just a bit, and he's going to be helping us through it. Um, Ngoni Mirimi saying, great show, looking forward to it. Thank you. We love having you here. Muresi, thank you so much for your hearts. Hearts right back at you. Thank you so much for your contributions. Thank you for taking the time to tune in. Uh, I know that many of you have been watching this trial ex- uh, very closely, and this is the platform where you get to be heard. Hi, Tadekulu, Melusikuli, good afternoon. Welcome. Hi, uh, good afternoon to you, Humoto, and good afternoon to everyone listening in. Melusi, maybe let's just start here. I mean, you've been watching throughout the week. Um, we we had Umtogos Isitwala back on the witness stand this week. Uh, he's been he's the fourth witness actually to take the stand, the fourth state witness to take the stand. Um, your thoughts on the week that it's been? Okay, I wanted to say that uh, you know that the defense lawyers, namely uh, the attorney. Advocate Sipora Musepe, Advocate Mnisi, Advocate Mumalo, and Advocate Shololo. All of them, they've been very good. They've been asking questions and details. And what I must highlight, without comparing them in a disrespectful way to the others, their emotional intelligence is very high. You know, they don't rush, they don't get angry, and they focus on the case. And that assists all of us. But let me focus now on what Twala has said. The main things that I've, I've noted, that I've shared you, with you, I think, on Friday when he spoke. Mr. Madlala, in comparison to what Mr. Twala said, he says the second, uh, second tall intruder was the one who was wrestling or tussling or fighting with uh, that deceased Mr. Mayo. Mr. Twala says the first intruder who was shot I think he was wearing a hat and dress was showing, was the one who tussled or wrestled, whatever you agree with, because I know it was an issue whether it was tussle or wrestling. But he was the one that fought with, the, with Mr. Mayo. For me, though, that, that alone is, is important because if, if you check you know, the consistency of the defense attorneys, they are saying, even if you go back to TEFO, this evidence, this evidence that is brought by the five people who were in the house, as based on 375 uh, of 19. It's a built case, it's a fabricated case. It never happened. Then if that's what they're saying, you have to listen as to how this, this maybe I'll say so-called robbery happened. For instance, can you, can you understand how they left an X6 in the yard and they wanted cell phones? It doesn't make sense. You know, so I think that's what stood out for me. I'll, I'll start with that. And maybe if I can say one or two things before you, maybe we, we, we continue. The other thing I want to bring across to the listener and everyone else here. Do you remember that in October and November, there was a certain guy who was arrested. His name is Mbata. And the charges were later withdrawn. Apparently, I think there was an identikit or there was an ID parade where uh, the, the mother of, 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 of Kelly Kumalo pointed him out. 
it will be very interesting when she comes to testify or any of the guys or ladies who pointed this guy out when they come to testify as to how they will point out the other guys because you know they pointed out, pointed out a wrong guy in the beginning now how can they be trusted to point someone else and then the other thing that that third thing i want to point out the last thing for now um is that mr twala by the way he has not pointed anyone out i remember when i was prosecuting four or five years back whenever i had a case of identification i would make sure towards the end or in the middle i'll say okay mr twala you are now here in court and you've you've mentioned the first intruder and the second intruder can you point out anyone here in court and say who was that intruder that was not done and even when he was cross examined he said he he said there's no one here in court or well, he doesn't say it directly but he doesn't point out anyone in court and the person that he says was wrestling with senso is a different person to what mr mandala was saying now there'll still be mr miss uh, zandi kumalo kumete to testify makumalo will testify the mother of kelly kumalo and zandi kelly will also testify and very interestingly enough i don't know if the, uh, the rest of you will share share my interest longwe is still going to testify I want to come yes, in there because I want to take you back. Yeah. I want to take you back to that point that you're making about how it's a different intruder that each of them are pointing out. Because the defense that uh advocate George Baloi, the state uh defend uh, uh, uh the not the, the state advocate, right, the prosecutor. He had spoken about how you know they were describing different scenes at different times so he's saying yes it may have been that mazala had seen the second intruder the taller one being beaten but mtogozisi may have seen the shorter one because this this is a moving scene and it was moving really fast i mean how strong a defense is that when mazala was so definite about place not mazala uh, twala was so definite about placing that second intruder in the kitchen he even describes in such detail that he was being beaten with uh, crutches and that's exactly what mazala also said he was being beaten with crutches except they've got different intruders i mean surely it can't be that this is just a moving scene and at different times i mean I, i i'm not sure if i was sold would the court be sold with that explanation but i just wanted to point out you are mentioning that mr twala was adamant that it was the first intruder right yes he was adamant it's the first mm. intruder mazala was adamant that it was the second intruder no I, I, it, it can't hold water so, so to speak if i can use that phrase because the the the, the corroboration of the witnesses must make sense I'm not saying everything must be the same but the crucial parts must be the same if if you are saying Senzo was 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 wrestling with with the with, with the short guy who was carrying a gun the other person who was there must also say the same thing so that we can see that you are talking about the same event and you are talking about the same offense that allegedly occurred now if you're going to have an explanation that it was happening at different intervals because I could see how Mr. Mtola was answering. He was saying, "I'm only testifying on what I saw." But the issue is, we need to we need to be told about what happened by the witnesses who were there, and we need to 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 see that it was the same thing that was happening. You can't be told that no, they are describing different intervals. It was happening fast, so it can't be that you know it it would be like that. So I I I don't think that explanation should hold water in my view. Right. All right, I do want us to move because there was a lot that that happened this week. But I mean, you know, we saw on Monday Ramosipil was back uh, cross-examining um the the witness Twala and one of the things that he had pointed out that really became a, a, a recurring theme was the issues around language. So when Ramosipil asked Twala what language the intruder the first intruder that walked in uh, spoke that's the intruder that he said asked for phones and money he said zulu sutu um tala then i mean he was asked again what language he said i'm not sure is it zulu or is sutu and then he said what were the exact words and he said but you just said them he said cell phones and money now we saw that question recurring right we saw that question continuing where we saw all the defense attorneys really latching onto that question the question was 
how do you say cell phones and money in Isizulu Sotho? But most importantly, what language is Isizulu Sotho? I mean, how important is that? We saw the lawyer spending a lot of time on that theme, asking him, what language is that? And what did you mean by Isizulu Sotho? And if you ask me as the reporter that's been covering the story, he was rather evasive when it came to this. He said, no, he was more leaning on to Isizulu. But then the question was, where does Sisoto come in if he's more leaning towards Isizul? Wouldn't, 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 wouldn't it have been sufficient to just say he spoke Isizul, especially for accused that are all from KZN? All right. Um, I think that was interesting to note. But I, I think one person that made it clear why he was asking the question is Advocate Minese. Uh, maybe it's because I listened to him more because you know, he brought a fresh approach to this case. I'll tell you why I'm saying that. He kept on asking about this language part that you're talking about. And then what, what usually Nisi does is when he asks a question, or in this case, what I observed, when he asks a question, he has a reason why he's asking that question. He will ask you a question, and then after asking a question, he'll bring a document or he'll bring your statement. In this case, I believe he bought out a, an identity kit that's where he was describing this uh, intruder. I believe there it was it was stated by the person who was uh, drawing the sketch or was drawing the identity kit. For for someone who's listening for the first time and following this case, uh, I, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. An identity kit is where if someone attacked you as an accused and you don't know the person, they'll usually bring someone who's a sketch artist to draw and describe that, okay, he was wearing a hoodie, he had dreadlocks, he was short, he was light-skinned, and then probably will describe what he was saying or what he said. In that identity kit, I think there was something noted that said he was, he was a Sotho-speaking guy. And when asked about that, uh, I, I believe you're following the case more, please correct me when I'm wrong, but when he was asked about that, he was evasive, as you said. Now, that is crucial because the five accused that are there, all of them are from Wanongoma. And I'm close, my, my, time is, my town is close to Wanongoma, about 100 Ks or less. And our area is where we speak, you know, deep Zulu, no mention of any sort. So that is crucial to say this person, when he first described the person who attacked, he said this was a Sotho speaking person. And then it, it makes, you know, the evidence of the state to be doubtful. And all the defense has to do is to create a doubt. At the end, I will describe what is needed when the, when we say the state must prove beyond reasonable doubts. So these doubts that keep creeping in, even if Twala or any witness tries to explain it away, once there's a doubt created, you know, that's all the defense needs. But I think the relevance of that Sotho Zulu speaking part, that's where it comes in. Because as you said, all of the five guys, they speak Isi Zulu, you know. It's not Josie Zulu, but Isi Zulu from KZN. All right, this is Above the Law, the Senzo Meiwa trial, uh, where we take a look back at the week that was in the Meiwa trial. Thank you so much for tuning in. I know you've got your contributions. Um, and yeah, let us know what stood out and made sense uh, for you. We have um, a legal analyst with us here today, Umelo Sikulu, helping us make sense of the week that was. Of course, this week we had Umchogozi um, Sitwala on the witness stand. He is, is among the people who were present <laughs> when uh, Meiwa was shot uh, on October 26, uh, 2014. And of course, he witnessed this together with Dumelo Mazala and others that were also there in the house, including Kelly Kumalo, Zandi Kumalo, and the mother as well, um, Gladness Kumalo. All right, uh, maybe let's move to this. Uh, this really had a lot of people talking, Melusi, around the interpreter. So I've seen this before, having covered the courts and covering the courts quite extensively. Interpreters are not... Um, overstaffed uh, in the courts. If anything, I've seen matters being postponed because there wasn't an interpreter. I've seen matters being postponed because the interpreter may not be as proficient in a certain language. And that's exactly what we saw uh, on that day. We saw on Tuesday matters having to be postponed because the interpreter in that court, that is Aubrey Jonas, who's been helping the court uh, for most of the trial, uh, was just not present. He couldn't make it to work. And it was really frustrating for many. The questions then arose around, I mean, do, do we have to postpone an entire court day for this? Couldn't we find someone else? Of course, we heard Advocate Baloi saying 
He had tried to find someone else and the only other Zulu interpreter was at the Palmridge Court over 80 kilometers away. Your thoughts on that, Melusi? Was that something for us to be worried about? Okay. Um, look, usually when there's the, the interpreter is not there, you'll usually have a second interpreter, maybe that works in court. But I remember that um, this case is in Pretoria, so I don't know how how they are able to organize, you know, one, I mean, two, two or three other Zulu-speaking interpreters. But what happens is, let's say at, at half past eight, I'm a prosecutor and I, I, I see that, okay, my interpreter is not here. Usually you speak to the office manager of that court and you will then make a plan um, and say, maybe, okay, because our interpreter is not coming in at nine, can we have someone arrange, being arranged from another court? then probably you'll get someone coming in at maybe 11 or half 10, and then you'll continue. But sometimes you, you can postpone because the interpreter is not there. But why am I saying at least you arrange that the, a different interpreter comes in the same day? It depends on the case. This is a high-profile case, so usually you want to get, you know, the ball rolling or you want to get, you know, you know, you might, we want to make sure that every day is utilized for, for that case to continue. So, you know, for, for such a, a, a high-profile case to lose a day like this, it's, 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 no, it's not something that you want to, to happen, but it happened. Uh, so, yeah, all I can say is they could have arranged someone else to come in. Because here's the thing about interpretation. It's not like an, a defense attorney who has to have the case from the beginning until the end. Uh, or like a prosecutor, all you come to do, you have you have to come and interpret. You don't you don't have to understand what is happening with the case, the technicalities. Your only expertise is to understand the English language and then understand the language that you must interpret the English language too. So, it I don't think it should have been postponed for the next day, but it happened. But they've resolved that homoto, and they said, I think Advocate Baloy said there is a second interpreter. So maybe in future it won't happen like that because, like I said, it's such a high-profile case and you want to utilize as much time as you can, you know, to get it done. But in, uh, they've continued uh, after that and uh, the case is moving on. It's time now for you to shine if you'd like to make your contributions. Any questions and comments are welcome right here on Above the Law. What stood out for you this week in the Mayua trial? Is it that uh, Zulu Sotu situation? Were you were you sold at that point? Is it the fact that Longwe Twala's name has popped up again? I mean, we saw his name popping up again this week where we heard um, again, which wasn't new, uh, but a statement was read from Mayua's brother-in-law where he said that Dumelo told him that uh, Longwe was angry with Zandi in that situation and they were fighting and then, you know, Usenzo, in their words, what dubulega, which essentially means uh, was shot in that spin. I mean, Longwe's name just keeps coming up here. Hey, I can't wait for him to take the stand. So what is it that stood out for you, um, all of you, our spaces? Um, is it potentially the fact that we lost an entire court day because people, we just didn't have an interpreter. What does that even say about our systems as a country? You know, in a case like this, a court day is really, really important. It means a lot. And um, and in a matter like this that's been running, it's almost 10 years. It's almost 10 years um, since Mayua was killed. But it's also what? A, a tr the trial has been about a year and we've only seen four witnesses take the stand. We know that the state has hundreds of witnesses that it could potentially call. And uh, we're still working with the witnesses that were in the house. We haven't gone into the DNA. We haven't gone into any forensic evidence. We haven't gone into eyewitnesses from the, the neighbors around. We haven't gone into anyone. Melissa, help me with this notion, right? So we heard Advocate Ramosibili saying the proposition that has been made by the state is at odds with a robbery situation. I'm not sure what to make of that. I mean, what he was basically saying is that the fact that you're saying Longo Twala ran past um, you ran past two intruders and he came out unscathed and no one chased him and no one ran after him and no one called him back. That is just at odds with what would happen in a normal robbery situation. I mean, is that even fair? Can we say that? Can we say things are 
um, at odds with a robbery situation? What does that even mean, uh, Melusi? Because we, people re- respond differently in robbery situations. Um, I'm, I wasn't sure what to make of that statement. What you are proposing is at odds with a normal robbery situation. I will try to to understand what uh, uh, the Atin was saying. I think he's saying that a normal scenario is if someone comes with a gun, is a first short intruder with dreadlocks and a head, then there's a second intruder and is carrying a knife. At that moment, if they are you know, on your pathway, is it easy for you as one of the people who are in the house to just move past them? You know, because if you remember the first statement, which is P1, I think it's paragraph five, that I'm told, I mean, that's a advocate normally was cross-examining on told you see, um, um, uh, Twala. He said on the first statement that he grabbed the gun and uh, he moved out. But then he corrected the statement three years later in 2017. And in my mind, it could be like this case is no, this, this story is being fabricated, it's being built. So the narrative of, 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 or the strategy of the defense is to say this robbery story is a fabricated story to such an extent that we are saying someone moved past uh, the, the intruders without being touched. But if you follow uh, Longwell's situation, hopefully, if you invite me again, we'll touch on this. There's a part where he made a Metro FM interview and he spoke about his his phone being taken. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. You can go ahead, Melusi. I remember that quite clearly. He uh, did that interview that had us all wondering, what do you mean? And and so I, I think that, that is why Ramosepe is trying to say, a normal robbery situation can't happen like this. There are other contradictions. Maybe we don't have time for now. I think we must allow the guys to come with their questions. But there are other contradictions that were brought up. And so it is, it's, I, I can understand what we're saying. We're saying this is not how a robbery should go. My, my take is also, if someone comes to rob, why would you take phones only when there's an X6 parking in the yard? I'm not a, a car fanatic, but I'm sure it's cost a lot of money more than phones. So you know all those things you think to yourself, and it, it, it doesn't make it doesn't make sense. Yep, that's the question that is that is uh, uh, being asked, right? I mean, what type of robbery robbery situation is this? And then they get away with one phone, and it's just one person's phone, and that is Kelly Kumalo. Uh, Incredible Garabo, you've requested to speak. Now is your time to shine. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Humuto, and um, thanks for the opportunity. And good afternoon to Melusi and. Um, the team there. Um, I just like one question because I've been observing um the court case since Monday. Um, I just wanted to ask like, is Mutosis Twala's attitude towards like the the defense lawyers wouldn't that um act against him, especially in a mirror case that is alleged to be like a cover up? Like, won't his attitude be counted as um um like some sort of like an offside or an own goal of some sort. Thank you, Karabo. Yeah, you're bringing us into a really important part of this conversation because really the issue of witnesses being hostile is a big one in the courts. You have committed, and correct me if I'm wrong, Melusi, but what I understand is that you've committed to come and um, and and assist the court, right, uh, in giving your testimony, and then you come and you are not only hostile, but you choose what to answer and what you don't want to answer. I've also got a follow-up question on that, Karabo. Thank you for that. But maybe let's just start with that. What did you make of him as a witness? Um, clearly, Karabo feels that he was rather hostile, um, at, from time, he was saying things like, um, "When they said, how do you sleep at night?" He's like, "With my eyes closed." <laughs> you know, very sharp answers. He was like, "You know, I mean, all of that very witty, very right. A lot of clapbacks that came there. What did you make of that? Okay, what what I made of that is that he he's trying to be defensive in what he's, he's testified about, and what the court will look at at the end. And when there are heads of argument and it's being argued, they will have to look at his demeanor and his behavior and whether he was, he was evasive when he was asking, I mean, he was answering questions and whether he was able to, you know, uh, give evidence that is credible. So his credibility can be a question. He might think in a way that, you know, he's being smart and he's, you know, he's, he's being sharp, but it, it can go down to his credibility to say, 
probably the way he's answering and the way he's being evasive is not something that is expected from a witness that speaks the truth. Remember that there will be witnesses who will also contradict him, will come in. That makes it even worse. So you look at his behavior, you look at the contradictions that will come in, and you look at the contradictions that we've also noted already. So I don't think it will serve the state well to have such a witness. And remember, I think I must just point this out for someone who's never been in court. When an attorney or a prosecutor asks you a question, you are not supposed to, 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 to question him as well. What you're supposed to do is to say, okay, I've heard, I've, I can hear you ans- asking me a question, but I don't understand. Please repeat. Now, what Mtogosis will usually do, I think he did it with Twala as well. He will, he will answer a question with a, and by, 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 by saying a question as well. And I remember just watched today, uh, Advocate Nomalo was saying, look, this is not a joke. Don't just uh, answer in any way you like. Respond to what I want. Don't ask me a question. That's how the procedure should be. So he is a witness that doesn't understand that all he needs to do is to speak the truth. And if his uh, evidence is, is not credible enough, they have to ask those questions. And he can't just be defensive and ask an answer in any way that he likes. So I think uh, what incredible Karabo uh, is saying is, is true that, you know, at the end of the day, his credibility will come in question if the way he's answering is not is not is not a, a, a way that we expect a truthful witness to answer. And then, in addition to that, we heard Judge Maumela not only, you know, of course, affording him the opportunity to have the question repeated, but we also saw Judge Maumela at some point asking him if he wants to answer questions. Now, I found that very interesting. I mean, it's one thing for the presiding officer, a judge, or a magistrate to say, Do you have a comment? But I think it's another when a judge says, Do you want to answer that? I don't know. Was I was I wrong to feel a little uncomfortable with that? I mean, he's in court to answer questions. Why is he being afforded the opportunity to want to answer them? The fact he can say no comment, that is an answer. But saying, do you want to answer it? And then him saying, no, I don't. I mean, surely that's odd. Yes, there is a question that should be directed by obviously a defense lawyer to say, um, this is what you've said in your statement. This is what you've said in your evidence in chief. I'm just making an example. And then he'll say, look, these things are contradicting. What comment do you have on that? But it's not for a judge to direct a witness to say, are you comfortable in asking that? He must not enter into the arena. His role is just to make sure that the proceedings go well and to control the tempo of the, of the case, but not to assist witnesses to on how they should, they should answer. But I didn't catch that. Hopefully you'll send me that clip for, for next time, but I didn't catch it. But if you did that, it doesn't look... Uh, like a proper thing to do by a judge or a presiding officer. Talk to us about witnesses uh, deciding to say, um, I don't want to answer that question. Does that make them credible? Does it affect their credibility at all? I mean, when witnesses are asked, please, you know, shed light or explain yourself here, and then they say no. Surely the judge at the end of proceedings will then factor that in in, 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 in whether or not they they take their testimonies into account or how much weight the testimonies will have at the end when the matter is discussed after closing arguments. Surely they can't get away with just saying, I won't answer that. Okay, I'll be short so we can give others a chance. If, if, if I ask a witness to comment on something and then he says, no, I don't want to comment, the crucial part is how crucial is that question in relation to the case, the context. And if he says, I don't want to comment, what I'll usually do as a defense attorney, I would make sure that I pointed out on my on my heads of argument when I'm arguing verbally to say, Your Worship, please take note that the witness was not truthful or credible enough to answer a question which is relevant to this case. So how can we attest any weight or how can we say his testimony is credible when he can't answer simple questions that can lead to the truth? So it's crucial when he says he won't comment on a crucial question. All right, we've got Dr. Mkumbulo, I believe that's your name. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. I just have a question regarding the witness there. I mean, the issue of the can. He was asked to describe the can that he saw, but he failed to describe it. How did he know that he's a can if he doesn't know a can? Mm, that's an important question there. It's a really important one. And it, it, we, we saw that taking a lot of the court's time, actually, Melusu, where we saw um, him being asked several times, you said there was a gun in your statement. You said it, it had a wheel, which means that it's a revolver. But now you're saying you don't know if it was a revolver. You don't even know what a revolver is. 
in a sworn statement, he says revolver. And then all of a sudden now he can't describe the gun. In a statement, he says the gun was black. Uh, but now all of a sudden he can't describe it at all. I mean, how much, how concerning is that? Surely he should have seen something. And you're right. How does he know that it's a gun if 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 he says you can't describe it? Uh, thanks for the question there. Um, I, I'll repeat again about uh, Advocate Nisi. Advocate Nisi, the rainmaker, I call him, Nisi Wemvul. He asked that question and kept on asking that question about him describing the gun. And I was wondering why he keeps on going there. But he had a purpose. That is why when cross-examination, we always say, never ask a question that you don't know an answer to. So in cross-examination, you don't just ask questions for the sake of asking. You ask them because you, ask them because you have a purpose. Now, he later on came on and he, talk about, he spoke about that identity kit where... There was a statement uh, to a certain extent that described that the gun is a revolver. But all along, he couldn't describe what, gun, what, what kind of gun it was. So that was a contradiction. You can't describe a gun on evidence in chief. You can't describe a gun when you are cross-examined properly. But a few days or a day later, when this incident occurred on the 27th of October 2014, you were able to say it's a revolver. It then goes back to 375 of 19, which says this case might have been fabricated by the people who were in the house, but that could be a topic for another day. And I think it featured a lot because, quite frankly, we saw um, Zandila Mshololo on Friday also asking, how certain was you that it was, at, how certain were you that it was an actual gun that the person had if you can't describe it for the courts at all? And then she even goes on to say, the reason why you can't describe this gun is because there were no intruders. She says, um, tell us the truth. There was no intruder. The people that killed Senzo were in that house. And I want to ask you, is there a reason why all the defense attorneys go towards that at the end of their cross-examination? They all go towards this was fabricated. This was, you know, it's almost as though they're trying to remind the courts that this was a fabrication, right? And he keeps answering the same question the same way, he says, I'm telling you this is how it happened. I'm telling you that there were intruders that entered the house. Um, help us with that before we go into the alcohol consumption as a factor as well. Okay. Um, like I said in the beginning, I, I want to touch on the fact that the state must prove its evidence beyond reasonable doubt. One of the cases I love, I love quoting when I'm, I, I, I talk about this in court is a case of S versus T 2005, uh, volume 2, SACR 318, that's the page, paragraph 37. One of the things it says is that when a court finds the case of an accused has not been proven beyond reasonable doubt, that accused is entitled to an acquittal, even if there may be suspicions that he or she was indeed the perpetrator of the crime in question, end quote. Now, what does it say? It says, even if there are suspicions that these five accused might have been involved, but because the state is not proving its case beyond reasonable doubts, there are contradictions, and it goes to that narrative or to that side of the defense that this case was built, it was fabricated. It's important for the de defense to keep on expressing that. Advocate, therefore, if I can be given a second, advocate, therefore, he had that information, but I believe, and I'm saying this respectfully, I believe he couldn't have the emotions to handle it properly and strategize how he brings that across. Because even the docket 375 of 19 about fabrication, he's the one that was forcing this docket to be to be spoken about. So the defense has obviously to move to that direction to say this has been fabricated. They have to keep on reminding the court because once the other witnesses come in, I'm sure this will be more relevant that Norman, these people were in the house, but what they are saying is entirely different. So they have to keep on going with the strategy that this is a fabricated evidence of a so-called robbery. All right. This is still Above the Law, the Senzo Meiwa trial with myself, Komuto Mudise. I'm the lead reporter on this story, and I've been covering it, um, the trial, at least from the very beginning. And we're making sense of proceedings of what's been happening in court. We meet here every week on a Sunday to kind of address your questions and to take your comments. I know that many of you have had questions and comments throughout the week, uh, pointing out certain things that jumped out at you, inconsistencies and in statements. And so this is the platform for you to ask those questions. I see you 
you again, doctor. I'm going to accept you in just a bit. I want us to jump into the question around the alcohol consumption, Melusi. I mean, we heard Mshololo really driving that point quite strongly on Friday. She, she was saying, the reason why you can't tell us how far you were from Senzo Meiwa is because you were drunk. It was because of the alcohol consumption. She then goes back to say, the reason why you can't give us any de- uh, definite details around what happened on that day is because you were drunk. Does the court factor that in? And if it does, how much? Just how much does the court factor in the fact that these people were drunk? Um, could it be said that you know your 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 version cannot be trusted because you know you you are under the, in, the influence of alcohol. Even though Mtogozisi is insisting he had two cans of alcohol and he was not drunk. Look, I'm saying the identification of the witness of 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 by the witness is very important, and uh, I'm I'm gonna sh- try to be brief. I you have to be patient with me. I like pointing out the law and case law. There was a very old case that talks about what we expect from a witness when he's talking about what he saw. It's an Ezra System Test, a 1972 case. The guys who are practicing will know this case. It says, and I quote, because of the fallibility of human observation, evidence of identification is approached, is approached by the courts with some caution. So the courts will look at things like this, the lighting, the visibility, the eyesight, the proximity of the witnesses, his opportunity for observation, and amongst other things, there's too many things listed here, how his sobriety at the time, if he could be able to observe things properly as compared to a person who was sober. So how much they drank or how much alcohol they drank is very important. But here's what you should note how Twilight approached this, because he was watching Pumelo. He keeps on saying, I was not drunk, I did not drink that much, so my sobriety was not a factor. So he keeps on, you know, going to that point. But let me remind you of Maggie Peary once again. We are told that Maggie Peary, who's a neighbor, came under someone's instruction. I'm, 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 I'm subject to be corrected here, but probably by Kelly's mom, to come and clean the scene, come and clean all the alcohol that was there, so that when the police come, it doesn't look like they were drinking. I don't know if she also cleaned the blood there. I think that might have happened as per testimony that was told before so you wonder why why do you clean alcohol and all that what was happening exactly but i think that the the other witnesses will because they are watching unfortunately they'll come in and try to say no we were not drunk but pumelo has already said okay i did drink but i was not drunk enough not to see what was happening so the state of sobriety is very important for us to know exactly at what a level were they able to see now, here's what I want to, to bring in before, before you let me go. Tomelo says there was no lights except they were watching Chelsea on TV, and this was the light that was coming in. But I think Mr. Twala says there was a light. So there's some contradictions about the light in the house. So it's important. All those things are important. You know, when, when I'm doing a, a heads of argument for this case, I will bring this case law that I just mentioned to say we must that how they identified must be approached with caution because of their state of sobriety at the time. Yes, and that's exactly what Mshololo was going towards. She was saying the court can't take what you're saying in, enti- in its entirety because your state of sobriety was um, questionable. And it's I think it's great that you point out the issue around um, the the light because that that issue was pointed out to actually show the differences in what time each person says this happened. Of course, with Dumelo, he said that he doesn't remember the lights being on. He just remembers the light from the TV. But Umtogo actually said that the lights were on, at least in the kitchen which means that this happened at a time where the lights had to be on in October. That will help us to kind of, you know, in terms of time. And of course, then it then begs the question of why um, the forensic, the forensic police officer that was called was called so late in the night towards midnight, right? As though it had just happened then. But the sense that we're getting is that it happened rather early in the evening. All those points really, really uh, important. Kolani, I see you. Gondo, I also see you. I'm going to allow you there to be speakers. But let's read some comments. I see some people don't want to speak on the mic, but they have some comments to make. Constitution first saying when he said old revolver in a statement, did he mean worn out? Is it old because it's an old model? (laughs) That's a great question, Constitution first. And it's an important question because he says, I've never seen, I don't know what a a gun looks like. I don't even know what a revolver looks like. He said, I just saw that it's a gun from the way that he held it. But then in a written statement under oath, he said it was an old 
Gun, right? That's an important uh, point to point out. Thank you for that. Mapega Wokobo says, was it proper by the prosecutor to try iron out discrepancies while the witness was still to be cross-questioned? I love that you asked that question because that happened actually, we saw that happening last week with that section 199 um, that he used, right? And uh, I think you'll get a chance to comment on that in a bit, um, Melusi. But let's allow, oh, okay, I think I've lost someone there who requested to speak. I think it's Olani. Gondo, you are still there. I am allowing you to make your contribution. Thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome to Above the Law, the Sense of Where You Are Trial. Uh, my name is Komoto Mudise. Gondo, the mic is all yours. Okay, so um, I just wanted to point out the fact that, you know, like the, that advocate, the lady, uh, she kept on hammering on the alcohol issue. And it's very important. And then uh, what I took note of is that um, when she spoke about the alcohol issue, uh, the guy also said that he didn't go to the identification parade. He never identified any of those suspects. So you've got that. uh, And then you've got the... The, the, the cleanup of the crime scene itself. So it raises questions as to why would people clean up a crime scene if they didn't have, like, if they didn't take part in it. So in a way, she's introducing new suspects. And by introducing new suspects, you are creating a reasonable doubt. So... In my view, this case is going to be very difficult for the state to prove. And um, by the look of things, and from what I've observed so far, it's something that happened in that house. And those guys are not telling the truth. Hence their statements. They have so many discrepancies. And honestly, mm. I think it's going to be difficult for the state to, to solve. Thank you so much, Gondo. That's, I mean, Malusi, that speaks to the contamination of the crime scene again, right? And this is a recurring theme in this trial. The fact that in the pictures that we are shown in court, there's only, I think, two cans that are there. It's a, a two cans that are placed very neatly in the corner in that house. And we understand from the, the both witnesses that have taken the stand, Dumelo Mazala and Mtogozi Sitwala, that they had way more alcohol, uh, that they bought way more alcohol than what was photographed there. So it's very clear that the cans that were left there were much fewer than those that had been consumed. And of course, that's where we have Megi Piri coming into the scene, the, the, the neighbor that was seen cleaning up that place. I mean, does contamination... I know how serious contamination is, uh, Milusi, but what does it mean for, for this trial? Does this mean we could find ourselves in an inconclusive trial here where no one is convicted because the scene is just contaminated? We can't trust anything that we're finding here. Even the splatters of blood that were found there, it's very clear that those are not the only blood spots that had initially been there because Megi Piri was seen cleaning up. Yes, um, look, um. There's, there's something I was trying to avoid to discuss for today, but I think the defense is trying to build a Section 174 application because of, you know, how this case is coming up. People have cleaned the scene, there's contradictions. Well, Section 174, briefly, is an application where after the state has closed this case, they've brought all their witnesses, then it's time for the defense to start bringing uh, the accused on the witness stand or any of their witnesses. The defense will simply say, look, based on the evidence that has been bought or that has been produced to the court, no reasonable court may convict the accused. I think that is where we're going with this case, but it will be more clear once the other witnesses or so-called witnesses have testified and that will be brought because like uh, Gondo was saying, there's, 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 there's also an issue of sobriety, there's an issue of cleaning the scene, and Nisi did say he will want to bring, I think, the first or second state witnesses, the police and the guy who came on the scene, the, the first witness, so, so that he can clarify this question because I, he might believe that it, they, those, there are some certain questions that have not been asked about the scene. So the evidence is not, is not, is not, is not what one will really uh, expect 
in such a high-profile case, or in any case for that matter, in a criminal proceeding. Right. I'm going to read a couple of uh, uh, comments here. I see a number of you are resorting to going on the uh, comment section instead of uh, speaking on the mic. Alex, you say, in reference to the line of cross-examining, it's a matter where the defense's job is necessarily to prove their client's innocence. Okay, I think it, you're saying it's not a matter of, but rather just to create reasonable doubt in the state's case and witnesses. And that's exactly what Omelus is speaking to, right? The fact that we, uh, the, the work of the defense here is uh, to create reasonable doubt. And, and I wonder how many of you feel, do you think that there is already reasonable doubt in this particular case? Alex, again, you say on Maggie Piri, the court will have to determine whether there was criminal intent. Of course, I understand that she has been charged with defeating the ends of justice. Maggie Piri, for those of you who don't know, um, is the is the neighbor that was apparently seen, and there are witnesses that have written statements that say she went and cleaned that crime scene, wiping parts of it, removing some alcohol cans. It's going to be interesting to see whether she will be called to comment or to testify at all, or whether her statement will be admitted as evidence. But I do think that the defense would like to have their chance to cross-examine her on what exactly happened on that night. All right, we have a few minutes left, actually, towards the end of our space. This is Above the Law, the Senzo Meiwa trial. My name is Komatsa Mudise, and I host these spaces every week when the trial is in session to get your contributions on what happened, your thoughts. We really appreciate your own analysis, and we appreciate your questions. Joining me today is Umeluse Kaba. He is um, a lawyer, a legal analyst that is helping us make sense of court proceedings. I wanted to ask you, and I forgot to ask all of you to rate um, Togosi Sitwala's testimony out of 10 for me, actually. Did, did you feel after that testimony that you, you have a greater sense or a better sense of what happened on that night when Meiwa was killed or are you left more confused? I, I don't know. Maybe you, uh, Melissa, can help us with a bit of a rating. How do you rate um, Togosi uh testimony out of 10? Do you think the court uh, is in a better position now? Any uh, more clarity or are we left even more confused after the two weeks that he's had? Uh, I think I'll give it two out of 10 because when he started, you know, he started well. He was describing they were going to go to a Mahamutsa party. They were going to go do this. You know, I was following it well, and I was like, okay, I'm interested to see what he's going to say about what happened in the house. But when he spoke about what happened in the house, he was contradicting the first witness, the statement of, um, I think, a statement of Zandi. Uh, you can correct me on that. It contradicts what he says because... Zandi says the second intruder followed Kelly into the room. He never said that, and the witnesses, other witnesses are still going to come in. You know, it's it's not satisfactory how he testified. Uh, so I'll give it two out of ten. And and sure. just to end, sorry, I just want to add this. You know, a, a testimony of any witness in a criminal case, it's like a, if you if you remember when you did maths, the formula that you use to get to an answer is crucial. And the steps that we have towards the answer from what has been brought in the testimony of all the witnesses, it's not, it's not taking us to the truth. So I don't think he's helping this case. It's just making it worse than it looked like before he came in. Dumb um, Jokers, I think that's your name. Really, really quickly, we've actually come to the end, but I don't want to close the door for you. So, Dumb um, Jokers, your contribution, please, quickly. And then we wrap up and throw forward to the week to come. Hi, uh, Homoto. I just wanted to ask, guys, uh, is there a way that this judge can be dealt with if he's found to have been biased or dealt this case uh, in a way that was not supposed to be dealt with? Because I feel like it cannot go unpunished if he's found to have uh, had that kind of a behavior along the way. I just want to ask Donna, Donna how do you deal with that? Thank you for that. I want to tie that in actually with something that you, Melusi, wanted to speak on. And I, I've just been reminded around the fact that Judge Maumela is potentially going to be uh, suspended. We're waiting for a decision from the president. A recommendation by the JSC is sitting on the president's desk and he could potentially be suspended, not for this case, uh, but it is for his failure to deliver or hand down judgments dating as far back as 2016. I want to couple that up with them jokers' question there, Melusi. Um, just help us with that. Can can he be held accountable in any way if he is found to have presided unfairly? Okay, he's already... Uh there's already a proposal that he must be suspended. And that 
the president must decide whether he can follow that or not. And remember, the JSC has people who are experienced in the law, former judges, I believe, and you know, practicing advocates. So, in a way, that he's already has there already complaints about him. So, if he does anything wrong, remember he must continue with the cases that he has started. But if he does anything wrong, it will add on the complaints that are already uh, against him. So I think that will depend if there are any complaints that will be brought by the people who are affected by this case. And here's the question I asked Yohomuto before we came on. And I was like, it's interesting that a complaint has been brought against him whilst this case is happening. Now, should it happen that he finds one of the accused guilty or any of them or the five of them guilty? Won't the accused say, hang on a minute, whilst this case was 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 proceeding, there was a complaint about the judge, about his competence, or his competence, sorry, I think that's the right word. So the case, it's clear, and I'm, I'm just saying that in, uh, as if that, that there's no case against me. And the person who had the case, it was stated that he's not competent enough. So that alone, you know, should give me a way to have the case being sent on review, because the person who had the case or he decided and then it was not competent. So I think there, there are those other problems that may crop up in the future. So it's like he must make sure that he behaves himself so that there are no further complaints that will be brought against him. That's, that's my thinking on his, on his situation. All right, we are already three minutes over time. Thank you so, so much to everyone for tuning in. This is Above the Law, the Senzo Meiwa trial. My name is Komunzo Mudise, and I've been covering the trial from the very beginning. I'm with you every week um, on a Sunday at 4 p.m. We make sense of the week that was, and we kind of throw forward to the week to come. It's difficult to throw forward to the week to come this time because we don't know who um, the next witness is. I kind of have a sense, but of course, we cannot divulge that at this stage, except the fact that I'm hearing from my people that it is still someone who was in the house. I wonder who you are all looking forward to having uh, come and speak, right? And of course, this will afford us an opportunity now to kind of compare all the versions. So if it is someone who was in the house, it will be someone that will be able to uh, compare their version with the versions that we've heard and kind of make our minds up or at least have a greater, a better sense of what's going on here. Uh, but of course, this does bring us to the end of Above the Law. Follow uh, at EWN Reporter. That's where we are reporting and keeping you updates. And follow me also at Muto underscore Mudise. Uh, but for now, this does bring us to the end. I'd like to thank you, Melusi, for your contributions. Melusi Kaba, a legal analyst and helping us through uh, or helping us make sense of all the court stuff um, and everything around this trial. Let's meet again next week, but until then, uh, goodbye and have a fantastic week ahead.